Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. Well, my guest on this episode is Susan Hunt-Stevens, who's founder and CEO of WeSpire, who run a platform to run employee engagement and campaigns using proven behavioural science techniques. Leadership, she says, may not come naturally to everyone and should be taught more in business schools. Most leaders... Um you learn by watching the people above and around them. And if those people that are above and around you aren't very good, you're not gonna be very good. And so one of my pieces of advice I always give young people is focus less on what you want to do and focus more on who you wanna learn from. ESG, environment, social and governance issues are now very high on the agenda for workers who care about the environment, working conditions, not only for themselves, but for the communities they affect. And they want to know that their organisations are well run within ethical principles. This is particularly true for younger generations. And those generations care passionately about ESG. They also will walk out of an organization that doesn't reflect their values. Getting more women into leadership roles can be done very simply, she says, simply by balancing the numbers called to interview. If you, if you, there aren't enough women, make sure the slate is 50-50 because it's more likely to change the set, if not, if not more, it's more likely to change the status quo because you don't even realize if you don't even have the right slate, even as a, as a woman, you're not going to necessarily make a gender balanced hiring decision. It's it's crazy, but we do it to ourselves. Stay tuned for Susan's pearls of wisdoms, really useful money advice, and her music inspiration on this Women in Leadership podcast. Well, hello everybody. Today I'm joined by Susan Hunt Stevens, founder and CEO of We Spire. Susan, what is We Spire? Maybe tell us a little bit about it and what prompted you to start We Spire. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. So WeSpire is a technology company and our mission is to help large organizations engage their employees in what falls under environment, social and governance or ESG initiatives. Um, The four most popular initiatives are sustainability, uh, everything related to saving energy, waste, water and fuel at work and at home. Uh, social impact, which has to do with giving back to the communities in which we operate. And so that can be everything from volunteering to employee giving, matching grants, uh, you know, disaster relief, uh, anything that's supporting the community. Well-being, which is a really holistic approach to well-being. It's mental health, uh, physical health, financial health uh, of employees and things that they can do to improve their own well-being on those fronts, and then the uh, inclusive culture. An inclusive culture really gets to helping organizations create a sense of inclusion and belonging, which is largely behavioral. It's how we treat each other each and every day and what kinds of things we do that can increase psychological safety or decrease psychological safety, confronting our own biases, our own you know, um, implicit and, and sometimes unconscious racism uh, and things like that. Uh, in order to create an environment that thrives. And what we know is that those cultures with the highest levels of psychological safety are the highest performing cultures. And so when you improve psychological safety for all, 
you're actually not only making it a much better place to work for all of your employees, you're making it a much more successful business. So it affects the bottom line as well as making it a nicer place to work. You know, as you say, that safety, what a lovely word to hear about the workplace. We don't hear it often enough, you know, people feeling safe. Yeah. Uh, And I think so much of the workplace, particularly, you know, when we were largely an industrial society focused on, on physical safety, you know, um, and all the, the issues that really face workers, you know, then and now around physical safety, uh, what we now talk about a lot more and understand a lot more. And I think it has to do with the transfer to knowledge work and how much collaboration and interaction and things like that we have with managers and project teams and peers is that sense of emotional and psychological safety and how it is that people make me feel each and every day. And is it safe to take a risk? Uh, Is it okay to ask for help? Can I be myself at work and feel embraced or do I feel excluded? And um, Google fortunately did uh, some incredible research trying to figure out what caused the highest performing teams at an already high performing organization like Google. And they looked at hundreds and hundreds of uh, hypotheses through a project called Project Aristotle. And what they found were those teams with the highest levels of psychological safety were the highest performing teams. It trumped everything. It's amazing. Well, actually, it stands to reason when you think about it, but so many companies didn't over the years. And it was like this autocratic way of like, I'm the boss and I'm the char- I'm in charge, and which didn't really give people freedom to think or to use their imagination and to allow a company to grow, I presume. Absolutely. And when humans were essentially doing work that now machines do, you know, there wasn't as much interaction, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, you kind of showed up and you did your work and you went home and you had peers and it was clear, you know, and all of that. But when you think about the work we do now, designing things, coding things, building things, delivering care, teaching, you know, all those kinds of professions, you know, how we treat each other, uh, how we treat our customers, how we treat you know, the, the, the vendors and suppliers that we work with really matters. Yeah, I believe it actually matters with investors as well. Um, I was talking Absolutely. to, uh, you know, like the amount of funds going into companies that care about ESG is huge. And there's been huge inflows, inflows into those kind of companies with high scoring ESGs. So this is about the bottom line as well as profit making. Investors are being careful for altruistic reasons about ESG, because a lot of young people are thinking, where am I going to put my money? Am I going to put it in a company that cares about its people? That's, you know, not going to have a detrimental environmental impact. You know, so these things are, there's push-pull factors on both sides, aren't there? There really are. I think the, the frameworks that are most interesting to think about with ESG are frameworks that Wall Street has used for years. Um, First and foremost, how do we estimate risk and how do we manage risk in an organization? And if you're looking at business from a risk lens, climate is one of the biggest risks facing many, many, many businesses for very different reasons. If you're a food manufacturer and you rely on crops being able to be grown in certain locations, you may have ingredient challenges. In fact, we have a couple of clients who are in the food business and we've heard stories already of, you know, drought just wiping out key ingredients. And then, you know, how do you deliver this this food um, as a result of this that's core to your revenue and your profit? 
you also have um, raw materials risk and, and scarcity. You know, uh, you have these kinds of frameworks around environment that are a risk framework, but you also have this framework around the environment that's an opportunity framework. And that's one that I think has been underrepresented in the early days of thinking about ESG and environment and sustainability. Um, so what and, do you mean by an opportunity framework? Um, the ability to build new products, to innovate, to think differently about how you do things in order to generate greater growth and greater profits. And so, you know, um, when people started looking at environmental factors and sustainability factors, there's the risk lens. Um, then the next lens was kind of a cost savings lens. Wow, if I can figure out how to reduce packaging or I can figure out how to do this with less energy or if I can figure, I can save money. And companies have saved billions of dollars uh, through, a, through an environmental strategy. But some of the clients we work with, what's most exciting is they've built entire new businesses when they start looking through a, an ESG lens at what's going on in, in their workforce and in their business and in their supply chain. So an example is we had a, a company that uh, when they were trying to hit a zero waste goal, recognized that a huge part of their waste stream were old tires. And it's because they had a big automotive component to their business and there just wasn't the infrastructure to recycle tires. So if they're trying to hit a zero waste goal and there's no infrastructure to recycle tires, how do you hit that goal? Well, what they decided was that there was an opportunity to start a business that not only helped them recycle tires, but helped everybody in the, the uh, regions in which they operate recycle tires. And that's now a business that's growing exponentially because they became the only business that enabled large companies to recycle large quantities of tires, uh, you know, not just for themselves, but for others. And so they see it through that lens or recognizing that consumer trends are changing and people want uh, products, personal care products, for example, that don't have harsh chemicals and that don't have um, you know, ingredients with, you know, that you can't pronounce and that don't grow in nature. And the people who are in front of that and saw that and began to offer those products, you know, whether that was in the early days, Ben and Jerry's ice cream and getting the hormones out of milk or, you know, some of the seventh generation products that began to get out a lot of the bleaches and a lot of things that were in the chemicals um, to, you know, what's happening in beauty and makeup now where clean and, and pure and natural are really the key, th key things that most people are looking for in their personal care products. Wow. Something you mentioned at the beginning, you said you're a technical company or a tech company. How are you a tech company? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we have a software platform okay. that has two sides to it. Um, the most important side is the side where somebody in a company who is a sustainability manager or a diversity and inclusion manager, well-being manager, goes in and designs their activities that they want employees to participate in. It could be a campaign, it could be a competition, it could be an idea board, it could be an event, it could be um, you know, a big uh, fundraising activity or things like that. And it's where they go and they design it, just like a marketing platform where you go in and design your, your marketing campaigns. They're just going in and designing their activities. And we use a lot of behavioral elements, you know, game mechanics and social mechanics and nudges and triggers. 
in there. And we have a library of over 350 activities that everybody can use um, to be able to um, take, edit, modify. So they don't have to start from scratch or they can create their own custom. They can then publish those activities using our software out to the company's intranet, social platforms, mobile applications, email, you know, all the places employees already are. Um, and then they get reports on that side of how employees are participating in these programs and the impact that is having. So how many people are participating? What are they doing? And then what's the environmental impact of that? What's the social impact of that? And then we measure the culture impact of that. How are, how are the people who are participating in these programs? How's their retention different from people who aren't? How are people participating, recommending the company relative to people who aren't? So we're making the case for culture. And we even have some clients who have made the case for customer loyalty and revenue off of the, the participation in these programs, which is pretty exciting. But the participation all happens by the employees. So if I'm an employee working in a company, I'm not gonna know I'm necessarily on WeSpire. I'm just gonna join and participate in a program like Cox Impact and I'll see the volunteering opportunity or I'll see the giving challenge and I'll you know, click on it and join and sign up and participate. Or I might decide I wanna be part of the Pride Employee Resource Group, or I might decide that I want to um, make a donation to, you know, COVID relief um, in one of our facilities uh, that's been really, really impacted or, you know, something like that. So um, all of these things are happening on the employee side, but the real power is the tools that we put in the hands of the um, of the, the program owners to be able to design and publish. So you make it easier for them to actually make it easier and we make it behavioral. If you think about how they were doing this work before we Spire, they were putting up signs in cafeterias and holding lunch and learns and maybe something in the elevator or the bathroom or, you know, things like that. And that would get the word out and that would get people maybe consuming content, but it wouldn't get them taking action and changing behavior um, and having that measured, you know, and so it's much more effective in terms of the program and it's much more measurable when you do it. I'm sure way. it really would have been a, a huge advantage when everything switched to working from home. Cause I mean, it's well, so hard to keep engagement. So that would have been, you know, really fantastic. Was it then? Yeah, I think, you know, well, first, like, like all companies, the first three months was a little bit like, oh my goodness, because all of our existing clients, um, many, many, many had to furlough employees altogether. And so they weren't, connected to the, the workplace. But for those that were working from home, yes, our platform became not only a platform for these activities, but we actually were running a lot of activities that were around COVID awareness, education, engaging kids and family at home, you know, all these things to really support employees during COVID, whether that was mental health and well-being or whether that was physical, you know, safety and, and awareness or work from home best practices or those kinds of things. We actually, you know, just started running a bunch of those activities for those that were still working. But then as people came back and folks realized that not only was the work from home a one-time crisis-oriented thing, but it was actually more effective than many expected, that employees wanted to have a hybrid work environment, that this might be permanent, um, a, a, you know, a permanent dramatic shift. Companies began saying, wow, we really need better tools to do this. And, and what we saw is that, you know, we had always worked with generally forward-looking companies um, who were kind of ahead of the curve. And we saw a lot more mainstream companies recognizing and moving faster. We, you know, the analysts in our space 
estimate that it probably took two years off the adoption curve and accelerated, um, you know, the adoption. Well, imagine that, yeah. I'd say there's no way back from, there's no way that everybody's going to work in the office anymore because people are just much more efficient. Now, on the flip side, people realize how much they missed some of their colleagues and the, you know, this, the, the bouncing ideas off each other around a table or a water fountain or whatever. But do you think it's been a good thing for women in particular, having this possibility or for families, you know, having the possibility of hybrid working? Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's so many nuances right now in teasing apart the answer to that question. So let me start by just saying COVID has not been good for women. It just hasn't. Um, you know, it, we, we've seen, at least here in the U.S., millions of women drop out of the workforce because what they were being asked to do with schooling from home you know, um, and and all the safety issues around COVID and, you know, getting vaxxed and lining up and, you know, all those kinds of things, the, the mental overload um, and the burnout that hit disproportionately hit women, um, particularly women with young children. And so COVID itself has not been great for women. That said, the learning that all companies have had about how effective people can be while working from home and how valuable flexibility can be while working from home and how agile people can be, you know, um, when they're given an opportunity to, um, you know, barbell their day and work, you know, in the morning when everybody's asleep and then take time when the kids really need it and then work, you know, kind of in the evening, people saw, wait, okay, where there's a will, there's a way. And I think that fundamentally and long-term is really, really good for women. Um, because I do think there was a very old school notion that if I can't see you, you must not be working. And you and I both know that's complete garbage. But there was a that was a very entrenched belief by many, many leaders, particularly older leaders. And um, and I think what people are recognizing is now, you know, people can absolutely do great work remotely, um, will do great work remotely. What it requires, though, is a very different culture. Um, it requires a culture that embraces uh, clear outcomes measurement, not presence management. Um, and a culture that requires strong, you know, clarity and communication, a good way of checking in and building community over virtual environments, um, you know, and, um, and these aren't easy changes. And I think that some cultures are really getting it right. Some are um, a disaster around it, and most are muddling through and, and sort of, you know, hopefully the the getting better all the time curve is, is accelerating. Um, I feel really fortunate. We were already 50% remote when COVID hit. Um, so our Boston office closed and we sent the Boston folks online, but already half our folks were working remotely permanently anyway. Um, so we had the tools and we had some of the practices and we had the, the norms, but it hasn't always been easy. Um, you know, we've had to be very clear about expectations for responding on Slack, you know, and clear about Zoom overload and that when it's okay to turn off your camera and when it, and when we really need you to be present and have your camera on, you know, um, recognizing that we, we, you know, you have to be flexible around that. And, you know, um, and uh, there are times where I still firmly believe getting people physically back together is super important. And, you know, in spite of the, 
Omicron risk, we did choose to get our eight members of our leadership team physically together for two days in January in Boston, because we just had some really important planning to do. And that's where I find the in-person really benefits is those strategic planning problem solving collaborative in environments um, you, you i do better for thinking in the moment and thinking on you know just bouncing ideas off each other but you're talking about leadership there isn't it important or is it important to have really strong leadership and somebody who's open to collaboration and open to new ways not always easy to get someone who's that open to new ways of thinking is it it isn't and i think we can all say that business might have been taught in business schools, but rarely was leadership taught. And so how do we learn leadership? You know, are we born with it? Um, You know, and are some people natural leaders? Absolutely. You see those kids, even in the third grade, who are the ones that organize everybody and figure out how the game is played and, you know, um, could do all of that, that kind of natural peer and uh, leadership. Um, but for most of us, we're not natural born leaders. And most leaders, um, you lo- learn by watching the people above and around them. And if those people that are above and around you aren't very good, you're not going to be very good. And so one of my pieces of advice I always give young people is focus less on what you want to do and focus more on who you want to learn from, you know, like, because you might find that if you get to work for one of the most dynamic, fabulous, wonderful leaders, finance might actually be fun and interesting, you know, even if you don't think that finance sounds fun and interesting, it's a little bit like, um, I, I don't know if you had this experience in school, but sometimes the best classes weren't ones that you were naturally attracted to. They were these mandatory classes that you thought sounded terrible, but they had incredible professors. Like I remember my managerial accounting course, uh, you know, that is not accounting is not my thing. I hated my financial accounting course. You know, I remember throwing a shoe at the wall. I was so frustrated with it, you know, in my, in my early days. And of course my, my fiance at the time now husband is an accountant. So he couldn't understand why I didn't see it as obvious. And I'm like, debits and credits are backwards. But, um, you know, but then I went to managerial accounting and I just had this incredible, incredible professor and I loved it. And I learned so much. And, you know, what it told me is that every, you know, financial thing you look at has a story behind it. Look for the story, you know? And it was like, all right, that's the way my brain works with, you know, with numbers. All right, now I get it. And so I ended up being very, very strong in managerial type accounting things, all because I had this incredible professor. I think the same thing is true in leadership. And I was very, very fortunate to work for a number of just great leaders and managers um, who taught me a lot, but I also have worked really hard at it. I read, at least one leadership book a month, um, you know, and, and you've I, talked, I know you've talked before um, about strong leaders like Paul Polman at Unilever. You know, how important is it that, you know, a CEO, particularly when it comes to ESG, that they actually really believe in it rather than a, a tick box that, that they lead out on it from the front? Is it is it really important when it comes to things like ESG that you have a good CEO in charge? I mean, I think it's important for everything, but ESG in particular and ESG in particular 10 years ago, um, 15 years ago. And I think this is going to be true for the next five to 10 years. I think ultimately 
ESG is going to become one of those no-brainers that every leader and manager is going to realize is important and embrace it. Um, but you know what Paul did really well early on is is recognize um, that being a force for good in this world was really good for business. And when you look at what Unilever did under his his leadership particularly what they were able to do when facing a hostile takeover from Heinz, um, you know, is really fall back on the vision and the strategy that they had set out, uh, set out around the universe, um, Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. But um, his new book, which is called Net Positive, which is written with Andrew Winston and, and speaks about this, also just talks about how you know, you really needed to believe this because it was countercultural. You know, he's going against the established norms of Wall Street. He was going against the established norms of business. And honestly, you know, they are under assault right now a little bit with an activist shareholder. He's no longer the CEO, but from people who think that, it, you know, that they they lost sight of, of, of fundamentals in the last couple of years since, since he left. But certainly under his tenure, what I observed was... Um, very clear mandate from the top, really, really baking it into business outcomes and business results, not check the box, nice to have activities, you know, that every job was anchored in it, um, really all with an eye towards growth and understanding where the world was going and why this was going to manage risk, why this was going to build opportunity. And certainly he's done better uh, and they have done better than many, many, many of their peers. As a result, there's this great stock price chart that looks at them versus Heinz and, you know, Wow. And I suppose measurement, you know, that, that focus on, you know, what gets measured gets done. They're like that constant measurement and focus, you know, like how are we according to where we said where we said we would be, you know, kind of measuring your performance as you go along. Is that really, really important as well? I think it's critical. And I think it's particularly critical for ESG because ESG is coming from a place where I don't think anybody ever thought that it wasn't the right thing to do. Yes, we should do things that are good for the environment. Yes, we should do things and give back to our communities. But ultimately there was never a business case for doing it. And businesses run on business cases. You know, that is something that you learn at business school. You, know? you don't learn leadership, but you certainly learn the importance of, of having a business case for the decisions you make. And so I don't have a Pollyannic view of organizations and thinking that they care, you know, that they, I think they, the people in them care that the human race survives at some level, but I don't think our incentive systems or our structures are set up, you know, for that to be why they exist. They said they, they exist in order to grow and make profits for the folks that are part of them, whether that's employees or shareholders or, or others. And so if you can't make the case for this in some way, shape or form, you're going to have a hard time having it be seen as strategic and having it embedded into your culture and your operations. And mark my words, if it's not embedded in your culture and operations, things are going to get really bad in five to 10 years, um, you know, because I, I'm not optimistic that we're going to get our act together on carbon emissions fast enough. I think we will eventually, but I'm not sure we will do it fast enough. You think there's not... a lot of pressure coming from the younger generations, you know, the Greta Thunbergs. I mean, I talked to some CEOs and leaders and they say, well, I'm getting it at home from my kids or my teenagers. Oh, absolutely. You know, so there's that push really from from the domestic sphere as well, isn't there? 
Yes. I mean, everyone is facing pressures. Everyone in leadership is facing different pressures for different ways. But the two biggest things that have changed in the 10 years, I guess now 12 years that I've been in the space, is that the investor pressure, you mentioned that uh, earlier, the investor pressure is much higher around ESG. One out of every $4 on Wall Street is now being uh, invested with an ESG lens of some sort. And so they're getting asked about it in every single call. And there's nothing that a leader hates more than feeling stupid when being asked questions, particularly by Wall Street analysts. And so everyone needs to have an ESG story because a lot of analysts are now asking that and a lot of shareholders are asking that and they hate looking stupid. So they've got to have, they've got to have an answer to that question. But the other is now um, millennials and Gen Z represent uh, 50% of the workforce. And by 2025, they will be 75% of the workforce. The, the uh, Gen X, which is my generation, um, you know, it's just really small and the boomers are retiring. And those generations care passionately about ESG. They also will walk out of an organization that doesn't reflect their values. So whether they are, you know, um, someone who hears things at the cafeteria that are underlying sexist or racist, um, you know, they might give the organization a chance to respond and bring it to HR. But if you don't respond well, they're going to leave. And a lot of... uh, you know, um, especially the most talented in-demand workers, scientists, engineers, um, you know, strong salespeople are like, I have choices and I can choose to go to an organization that really cares about this or or not. I'm going to choose the one that does because I think it's going to be a better place. I think it's going to be a place where I get to feel like the culture manifests the things I care about. Particularly when it comes to women. I mean, we're talking about women in leadership here. I, I, I still think that we don't fight our corner enough. Is there, you know, if I was to come to your five pearls of wisdom, particularly when it comes to women in leadership, what might they be? What advice would you give to women? You've had a fantastic career and, you know, you've set up, our, we aspire and everything now. What would your five pearls of wisdom be? First and foremost is to show, is, is to speak up, you know, I think for a lot of different reasons, women hold back. Uh, They hold back their ideas. They hold back their opinions. um, They hold back their anger and frustration. And so the first thing is that um, the workplace really does disproportionately benefit those with a voice. Um, And, you know, if you're an introvert, that makes it really hard. But um, the more you speak up, starting by sharing your ideas, you know, and things like that, I think that is is obviously a key to to success. The second is advice I'd give everyone. But the truth is, we do have to work hard. You know, don't burn yourself out. You know, this is a marathon of a career, not a sprint of a career. You may have to sprint now and then. But you, you know, um, but you do want to roll up your sleeves and contribute and be that person on the team that that people um, rely on, um, because that is something that um, the women are really good at. We are amazing multitaskers, and we can get more done in a day because we've had to learn how to get more done in a day. Um, you know, and so that's a benefit to a, an employer. So to the greatest extent, you know, you can be that person that says, says yes to things. Um, you know, which might be my third thing is work hard and say yes, you know, when asked, 
um, say, say yes. Um, is that a bit about taking risk though, which, which yeah, traditionally women haven't always been great at, you know, just taking that risk and going for something. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that women, when women and men, for example, look at a job description, if men think they match 50% of the qualifications, they'll throw their hat in the ring. For women, they hold themselves to an 80 to 90% qualification level before they'll throw themselves in the ring, you know? Um, and so we expect almost too much of ourselves and don't push ourselves, um, you know, to take and to be okay with with throwing your hat in the ring. You know, and part of that is it sucks to be in a ring where you're constantly getting rejected, you know? And um, and so, you know, you're putting yourself out there and yes, you're setting yourself up for rejection. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes who, you know, I, I really wish I could remember who told me, but, you know, if you, if you aim for the stars, even if you don't hit the stars, you'll at least hit the moon versus if you don't aim at all, you know? And, and so much of that is just take that shot and just say yes to things um, when you're, when you're asked, um, sure. you know, um, and I guess the last pearl of wisdom that I, you would say is, um, you know, bias is real. You are going to be in environments that are biased. You just are. Um, and you you have to decide how you stay energized in spite of the bias and how you tackle the bias. And so, and there's different things that you can do at, at different career, uh, career points. Um, and, and different people are comfortable doing different things, but certainly I hope I'm a leader. And I think there's examples I can certainly point to as a leader who when somebody speaks up about bias that they're seeing or something that they're seeing in the workplace gets supported for bringing that up, not, you know, doesn't get a defensive reaction or, or, you're, isolated, up, yeah. or you're doing this or, you know, things like that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, um, so if you're seeing things, you know, it gets back to lesson one, speak up, you know, um, and you'll know very quickly what kind of culture you're in. And so hopefully you're in a culture where speaking up is rewarded, um, you know, but, but if you don't raise it, it doesn't change. Um, you know, the second is when you are in a place where you now have decisions, educate yourself around your own biases. Because one of the things I have witnessed in my career uh, is women not being particularly supportive of women. And the, and, and, you know, I think it was Madeline Albright who said, hell hath no fury, um, you know, for women who don't support other women, but, Pull up but the ladder behind our <laughs> own, yeah, we have our own biases and we don't even realize sometimes how our biases are, are sexist in nature and that we we're used to a culture that looks way and we learned how to work in that culture. So we don't want to change the way the culture looks because we're comfortable in the way it looks. And so, you know, there's a, some incredible research that shows, for example, um, uh, you can change the status quo by actually changing the status quo of hiring slates. So it doesn't matter who the hiring manager is. If when you're interviewing for a job, there are three men and one woman, you're it's the woman has 0% basically chance of getting hired according to the research, just because the slate itself is unbalanced. Whereas the minute that slate has two women and two men, you have a 50, women have a 50% chance of getting hired. And if slate had three women and one man, 
67%. I mean, dramatic differences just by, so what can you do as a female leader? Make sure that if, if the issue you're trying to tackle is an issue of um, racial representation, make sure that slate actually is 50-50 because you're more likely to then make a decision that changes the status quo. If you if you if there aren't enough women, make sure the slate is 50 50 because it's more likely to change the set if not if not more it's more likely to change the status quo because you don't even realize if you don't even have the right slate even as a as a woman you're not going to necessarily make a gender balanced hiring decision it's it's crazy but we do it to ourselves so tell me what are you doing for the planet how is esg in your own life what do you do just on a daily basis Absolutely. Well, this all came from me being a complete sustainability nerd, personally, to be honest. So um, what happened was my my son had some serious food allergies as a baby, and I had to start reading labels. And so the first thing we did was we just got all the nasty stuff out of our food. And I had had no awareness how many chemicals and preservatives and all of this was in the average baby yogurt and, you know, let alone the meats we ate and the chickens. So we joined a CSA. We, you know, shop mostly um, organic, and you know, um, and just be very conscious first and foremost about where our food comes from, um, you know, and things like that. Recognizing there's always the carbon trade-off and the organic trade-off, and you've got to kind of try to make good decisions um, around that. The second was I went back to grad school in sustainable design. And that's actually where I got the idea for Weespire was in sitting in one of my classes about the lead system for green building. And I was like, why isn't there some sort of system for people, um, you know, to help people be more sustainable? So for us, it's uh, it started really with, we live in a very old home. It was built in 1891. That might not be old by Irish standards, but in oh, the US old. it is. Um, you know, so we had to do a lot to the house to, to you know, weatherize and dual flush toilets and compost, uh, you know, we're composting and um, we're on 100% renewable energy. We drive hybrid cars, you know, all that kind of stuff that just really tackles it. The area that we... Um, have had huge benefit on over the last two years, although not the way I would want it is if I really looked at our carbon footprint, um, there were two things that really drove, drove it besides our home. One was the food we ate. Um, so we really have tried to cut meat out of our diet um, and it more than we used to, you know, we're not vegetarian, but we try to have a very, what I would just call meat conscious diet. When we eat meat, we try to make sure that meat was not grown in a factory farm and, you know, all those kinds of things, um, you know, for lack of a better word, responsible meat, we've mm. embraced impossible burgers, you know, for better, or for worse and things like that. Um, but then the other is, is travel and, you know, travel is one I really, really wrestle with because I, I know from the research that people who travel are much more likely to be an inclusive people are much more likely to be open to change are much more likely to be innovative you know, travel is so powerful for making us better humans, um, you know, and yet it is, it is a really, really big impact. Um, so the things we choose to do uh, on that is we actually measure our carbon emissions every year. And um, we try to make good flying decisions. If we fly, we try to reduce the amount we fly. And when we fly, we offset um, our flights and that's controversial, you know, it's not, it's not hundred percent the right answer, but the, the reality is that no human can get their carbon emissions down to zero. Um, but what we can do is help fund projects that get a lot of, um, you know, systemic emissions, uh, out of the air. One of my 
favorite projects because it has so many other ramifications is related to cook stoves and bringing cook stoves to women who otherwise are foraging in uh, the woods for, for uh, wood uh, type fuel or burning dung inside. And the reason I love it is not only does it get carbon out of the air, it reduces deforestation, you know, from the stoves themselves and the cooking itself, it reduces deforestation, but it also um, gives women back the time that they were spending wandering, you know, literally dozens of miles sometimes just to find the fuel that they needed to feed their families. And so it's one of those classic things where, yes, it's getting carbon out of the air, but it's having huge equity impacts on women and girls. Never heard of that before. Well done. Um, one last question, your go-to song. If you ever listen, I know you're a dancer, so I know you must love music too. <laughs> well, this you're going to love this because it totally fits. Um, so my nickname, I used to play ice hockey in business school. That's a whole other story. But um, for various reasons, I ended up with a hockey jersey nickname of Dancing Queen. And so Dancing Queen and given how much I love to dance and my hockey nickname and all of that is definitely my go-to song when I'm when I need to pick me up. Fantastic. Good old Ava song. Um, I forgot to ask you about the best bit of money advice you ever got. Money and finance. Did you ever get some good, you know, old fashioned money advice, piggy bank or investing yeah, or whatever? Yeah. Well, it's fun because we actually do financial well-being programs. And so I learn a lot from our own platform around financial well-being. But honestly, the best advice that I ever got came from probably my parents. I'm going to guess maybe my grandparents, but they taught me that every time you get your paycheck, take 10% of your paycheck um, and, and allocate it towards charity and take 10% and allocate it towards your future and live on the remaining 80%. And, um, and it was just, it's such a simple way to think about it. And it sorts the, it's the pay yourself and pay, you know, and pay it forward first, then live on the rest. So listen, thank you so much, Susan. It's an absolute pleasure. We've gone way over time, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. And it was so wonderful to meet you too, Angela. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Susan Hunt-Stevens, founder of Weespire, the guest on this episode of the Women in Leadership podcast. Please follow us on Spotify. Tune in, Google and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts for more insights into the world of women in leadership and diversity and inclusion. You can check out our website, womeninleadership.ie, where there's a huge back catalogue of interviews with women on all sorts of topics. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care.